Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everyone, hopefully you're having a great March so far. Welcome back to the show. As promised, we would have two episodes this month because I've been basically sitting on my butt. In fact, this one's a little bit late. I'd meant to get it out last week, but got a little distracted and got a little sick with the allergies. Just uh, changing of the seasons, I guess. And uh, yeah, just getting some other work done around the house, waiting on the FAA to send me my medical still. Please go ahead, take your time. No rush. Anyhow, today's guest I uh, really enjoyed speaking with, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it as well. Uh, Colonel Eric Buer was a Cobra pilot in the United States Marine Corps, and he's recently written a book. In fact, it was published yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. Today's the 21st of March. It came out on the 20th. Uh, we'll get this out here in a couple days, probably around the 23rd is what my goal is. And uh, as promised for Patreon supporters, I did tell you that I would give you a special treat. So I've worked with Eric about getting uh, some copies of the book sent out to some Patreon members. So I'm going to do just kind of a behind-the-scenes raffle, uh, two or three of this book. So I'll go out. I'll uh, get with you guys here soon. I'm working with Eric to get them signed. Um, he's for it. It's just a matter of the, the logistics behind it. So... We'll, uh, more about that later, but uh, without further ado, we'll just roll right into it with Colonel Eric Buer, United States Marine Corps. I know we were talking the other day on the phone. When, when did you retire? I retired in uh, 2016. 2016. How long? How long? How long did you serve for? So I was commissioned in 1988. So. Almost going on twenty eight years. Wow! And you were you? Oh, so you you were commissioned the entire time. You retired what? Is oh six? I'm assuming. That's correct. Yeah, I was a colonel. Um, okay. Yep. All right. So, what drew you to the Marines? You know, I probably think like a lot of like a lot of us who end up in the military. I I thought about it a lot as a kid in um in a fair amount of family in the military, um, no one particularly those in the Marine Corps, no one that flew. Um, but kind of as I got a little bit older, I, I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty good, I thought it was a pretty good track for me. And I just kept it in the back of my mind and never really, never really thought about it too much. Um, and then it just, you know, one day I was in college, I just walked down to the recruiter and I said, Hey, I think I want to do this. And he's like, okay. Um, but it was a typical recruiter. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm in college. He goes, let me walk you over to the, uh, to the other recruiter. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> ring recruiters are, they're silver tongue devils. They'll try to get you, you know, they'll, they're, they're fantastic, but they, uh, they, they, they saw a live one and he was good enough to walk me over to the, uh, to the officer recruiter. So that, that was, and he could tell me a lot more about kind of expectations and the things I really wanted to talk about. So, so how did that work though? You were already in college. So, I mean, what was the, what was the path from that point? How far along in college were you? So I was, a, I was a, a freshman. Okay. So I was, I was 18 by then. So, yeah, so we, we talked and then the next summer, 
he talked to me. He said, Hey, we have, we have a program where there's really, and this is the great recruiter part of them. You know, there's uh there's no hook, you know, just, you know, we'll go run, uh, do some pull-ups and sit-ups and uh, take a couple of these tests. And if you like it, we'll send you down to Quantico. Um, He's like, you know, you get a fresh haircut and, you know, get a good workout. If you don't like it, you can, you know, you can tell him you don't like it. So he was, he was, he was, yeah, it was a little, little bait and switch, but, um, so yeah, I was 19. I went to OCS, um, in Quantico. And then, uh, you know, by the time I graduated, um, I was commissioned. With were you contract. pretty, uh, were you pretty like you know, fit, like, were you, were you a sportster? Like, was it easy to kind of transition to, to doing that? Or was this completely out of, out of bounds for you? No. So I played, um, sports all through high school and into college. So in, when I, when I had talked to the recruiter, I was, I was running track. So it, it made it, I have to say it, it made it pretty, pretty easy physically that side, not easy, mm-hmm. but it, it took a lot of the, uh, mystery out of it. So what, I mean, you finish college, you, you, you're now commissioned in the Marines. What happens next? Yeah. So the Marine Corps, they, they send, you know, every Marines a rifleman. So as a young second Lieutenant, we all go back to Quantico for a six month, um, course called the basic school. And it's essentially a six month course to teach you how to be a platoon leader, um, really a platoon commander, um, just understanding all the responsibilities and expectations of a Marine officer. Um, some of it's very tactical, you know, call for fires and, and patrolling and the things you'd expect. Um, and then a bunch of it was kind of decision-making and, and leadership. Um, and so I was really fortunate. We had amazing, I mean, I look back at the staff, um, you know, the infantry officers course was, was run by a major John Kelly at the time. Um, who went on to be, you know, commander of Southcom and other great things. And Hmm. I just looked at the staff they had there and, um, just, they were just amazing. So it's, it's a shared, um, it's kind of, you know, misery loves company. It's a shared misery for every Lieutenant because you don't want to go there, um, necessarily. Um, but you spend six months there and from there for me with an aviation contract, um, I came to Pensacola and, and started my started what I thought was going to be a, you know, moderately short career in aviation, but this is where we, this is where I ended up. So you, you said you, you didn't have any background as far as Marines, but was there any background in your family with aviation? No, no aviation. Oh, you just had a wild hair up your ass to just go fly <laughs> for the Marines? <laughs> well, I did. And so, you know, yeah, I knew I wanted to fly. And then, uh, mm. and again, I go back to that, that recruiter who was an aviator. Um, mm. And uh, he's like, no, Eric, we don't just storm the beaches anymore. They, you know, they give us, you know, they give us helicopters, attack helicopters. We got jets and we got all kinds of cool stuff. I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, um, I could, I could potentially do both. Um, so that was, that was kind of the hook for me. So, I mean, what, what were you more drawn to though? Like at the time, did you want to fly helicopters or you just didn't care or like what? I didn't care. You know, I was a, pretty average student, uh, econ major. Um, you, you know, I'm sure that you had the same experience going to flight training. Sometimes you run against guys that are you know, aerospace engineers and super smart. And I just, I didn't know what it was about. So, um, yeah. 
my goal was simply to get my wings um, any way I could. Uh, and I was, I knew I was going to be happy. So, I mean, talk a little bit about flight school. Like what, what was that? What was that like for you? What did, what did you like? What did you not like? Oh, flight training is great. <clears throat> um, naval aviation flight training is a little bit, even then it's, it's just a little bit different. Um, I was really uh, impressed with the amount of freedom I had, quite, quite frankly. So you, you show up and you have a, you sit around in kind of a pool of other lieutenants and you get pushed into classes and you join your Navy and your Coast Guard and your international, you know, teammates or classmates. Um, and there you go. It's, it's almost, it's not self-paced. Uh, they wouldn't want to like it like that, but there's no, the, the rigidity of, or the, you know, I think in some other services, you join a class and there's this pressure to get you through with a class. Mm-hmm. So the Marine Corps, uh, pushes it into a, into a class with the Navy and you, you kind of be, you kind of don't meander, but you, you kind of go through as, as the Navy can get you through it. It's probably not the best way of describing it, but, um, yeah, it's challenging. One thing I liked is it was challenging. You know, you're, you're immediately tossed into pretty heavy academics, um, things I'd never studied. This goes back to an econ major trying to understand, uh, lift (laughs) and aerodynamics. (laughs) You're like, uh, just, just you just kind of hang on and you pray that when you get your test back, it starts with at least an eight. That's the first number. Um, <laughs> so, so, That's right. So, so you're not one of those guys. You know? so, yeah. Well, they, they don't they don't put your grade on your wings or anything, but yeah, you definitely want to you want to stay yeah. in the middle of the pack. Yeah, was, absolutely. Yeah, I found myself. Um, I, I was already in the army uh, on tanks when I went to flight school, and um, yeah, it was just like you know, and this was 2002, probably time frame. So, you know, you didn't necessarily have Wikipedia and all this stuff, but yeah, I remember going to like, you know, the library and checking out books on helicopters and just trying to wrap my head around, you know, a basic aerodynamics of helicopters. Cause I'd never really put any thought into it either. But I was the exact same way. And you're right. There was no, the source was the book they gave you and it was written. Yeah. It was written by someone I, you know, I probably, you know, I don't know whoever wrote them, but they were very difficult to understand for me. And but some people just picked it up like it was a, like it was an easy to read newspaper article, and they could spit it back out. And that was not <laughs> the case for me. Yeah. So you get through school, uh, and and what you tracked cobras at that point, or did you do something else first? No. So we uh, we all go through flight school um, after everyone flies um, fixed wing aircraft, and after that yeah. fixed wing aircraft period, they select. Uh, what their preferences are in the Marine Corps, you go either jet prop, which is just C-130s or, or Hilo. Um, in that time, I, I don't know the numbers now. I should probably 65, 70% one helicopter. Um, really? And so, uh, for me, it wasn't even a choice. They're like, yeah, dude, you're going, you're going to go fly helicopters. We're not was that, was that because of a need or that's what, that's what people wanted? That's generally the, the percentage breakouts. Um, oh, okay. Just of the number of airframes, I may be off a little bit. That's okay. But the number of airframes we have a we have a lot of we at the time and we still do we have a lot of helicopters. A lot of air groups of our a lot of our squadrons are primarily you know rotary wing. In this case, now we have you know, tilt rotor and rotary wing, and yeah. and not nearly as much um, fixed wing. Was it a popular choice? Like, did was there a preponderance of people that wanted rotary wing versus jets, or like, wh- what do you remember the breakdown was of, of attitude basically in the class? 
You know, that's a good question. Um, you know, some people um, really wanted to go fly jets. They, that's what they thought they wanted to do. They wanted to go fly our case F-18s or Harriers. Um, yeah. So we still had guys getting A-6s and getting OV-10s, um, which mm. uh, was uh, interesting. Um, not many. But then there's also an understanding uh, in marine aviation, there's some platforms uh, where there's just a lot of them. Like So we have 46s, which are now, you know, replicated by Ospreys. There's just a lot of them. So there's a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot of chances for progression, a lot of chances for, you know, command of units. Um, so some, some folks had some thoughts about that. But I think everyone, um, you know, grades were grades. Um, your top guys uh, took whatever slots they wanted. Um, and then the rest of us, um, we progressed in whatever track we were told to track into. You know, it's the needs of the Marine Corps. Probably needs yeah. the Army, same thing. And then the exact same thing when it came to um, selection in helicopters. So like, I had a big group. I had a really big group. People had 15, 16 of us in a winging that were Marines. Um, and so they walked in the room. They said, hey, here are your choices uh, for for selection. And number one guy he stepped up and took 46s, you know, uh, out in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, number two guy took Cobras West. I was a number three guy. I was really fortunate. I knew I wanted to fly Cobras. I just, it was kind of in my brain. This just seemed like a really cool mission for a lot of reasons. And so it was on the East Coast. So I said, I'll take Cobras on the East Coast. And that's how it went. Next guy picked. Yeah. Uh, well, I feel like we're kindred spirits now because I was number three in my class as well. Um, and I, I remember, I remember when we selected the first, the first pick was UH sixties, and then I think Kiowas, and then and then I picked Kiowas. Um, but I, I, I ask because you know I talk to people and you know people who aren't in aviation or at least not in military aviation, and you know they're surprised when I tell them, yeah, the very we had one Apache slot in my class. And it went to the very last guy in class. And people are like, why? why? I don't understand. Why wouldn't that be the first pick? And then it goes to the idea that, well, you know, not everyone wants to do the same thing. There's a different, there's a different type of flying for every, you know, type of person. There's different personalities and people want different things. So it's interesting. You said the number one guy in your class took 46s because he, he had a plan, right? He, he, there was something in his mind, either he just didn't feel like an attack guy or he, like you said, you know, there was a lot of career progression or he had a long-term plan of what he was going to do afterwards or something. And those are the kind of games that really get played. And I think for the the lay person, they, they just look at the stuff and say, well, this looks cool. This is probably what people want to fly the most because, you know, the Apache's cool or the Cobra's cool or the F-16, you know, things like that. Uh, and it's not, it doesn't necessarily play out that way. No, you're spot on. And the number one guy, he went to, he wanted to go to Hawaii. He would take anything in Hawaii. So he went to Hawaii. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, that's true it, too. You guys pick, and then it's like you said, East coast, West coast. I like, we didn't do it that way. So that's, I'm wondering how that would have played out. Cause the army's, you know, it's just a big dumb animal and there's stuff everywhere. Um, so we didn't do it quite that way. So that's interesting that you guys do it that way. I, I see why, of course, it's a smaller organization. It's a little bit more, um, centralized, I guess, more focused in certain areas. But, yeah, I think it's just you know a lot a lot fewer of us just because just the size of the force and those in aviation, but it changes yeah. over the years. They've they've worked through. I I think now they do some type of quality spread, so they 
They mm. they try to um, they certainly always try to take care of the you know the, your top couple of folks, at least your number one folks, and let them um, sure select what they want, and then they they try to make sure no one community is. Um, <laughs> That's a good suffering. point. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Because I didn't think about that. Like if your your top twenty five percent all pick, you know, East Coast. And then you got all the the dregs of society in the West, or you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it makes yeah. a challenging uh, challenging environment for the organization. Yeah. Well, you probably saw it too. This is just my observation: is you know, our best performers in flight training, um, you know, some of our lowest performers in flight training that I knew, my class, ever the classes, um, they became by far the best pilots, the best leaders, the most focused folks. Um, right. They knew every day they had to work harder. They knew they didn't perform particularly well in flight training, but they had these other, you know, things we all develop as time goes on, these you know, intangibles that make them, you know, great leaders and people that other people want to emulate. So Yeah. Yeah. And then once once you're removed from the stress of of school, because I'm I'm sure the pressure was on there just like it was when I went through, you know, the 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 order of merit list was king. And so of course you you wanted to be up there so that you could pick Hawaii in 46s if that's what you yeah. wanted. And so there was always that stress. And yeah, once you get away from that, now you're just focused on your job, then, then maybe you can get a little bit better at it. Hmm. So Cobras, what what year was this? This was uh, 91. Okay. So 91, Desert Storm has already happened or it's happening while you're Desert Storm, when I'm there, Desert Storm's happening. Yep. Okay. How how did that affect people in class? Like, were you guys like, oh crap, we're 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 as soon as we're graduating, we're getting into it? No. You know, my recollection was that um, probably like anyone in aviation, they were afraid it was going to be over before they had a chance to participate. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, hey, this can we drag this out a few more months? I really, you know, and and that you know, that would repeat itself over uh, clearly over the next you know, 30 years. That's never been the case, but yeah, for all, I think most of us were, you know, uh, looking for ways to accelerate ourselves. And of course we had certain guys that, ha- you know, had, had jumped ahead and, and had a chance to um, participate in, you know, desert storm proper. Um, hmm. What kind of uh, Cobras were you flying? What, what version? So interesting. So, um, the Marine Corps was in transition. Uh, our, our FRS, our, you know, our fleet replacement squadron, flew uh, 1973 J models, hmm. which, uh, well, it's like, it's, it's like being trained in an OH-58 Alpha, and you show up on the flight line of your first unit, and, you're fly, and the unit's flying OH-58 Deltas. Huh. And you're like, it looks, it looks kind of like an OH-58. Right. I mean, but it's got all this stuff I've never seen before. Um, so that was pretty interesting. So the FRS had J's, which was wild. And then the East coast still had some, some T models, tow models. Um, mm. this is different engines, different drivetrains, different avionics. Um, but fortunately the squadron I checked into all had whiskey models. So all had W's, uh, which mm. we would fly until, you know, just a few years ago, uh, with, there's certainly there's a lot of technological advancements in the, in the whiskey. Um, those models could, could shoot, uh, 
you know, tow missiles, Hellfire missiles, but you need someone to designate. They didn't really have much of a night capability until we would get um, a night targeting system and some other advanced technologies built into it. Okay. So at that time, and I'll admit my ignorance when it comes to uh, the Cobra, probably just because there's so many variants, but yeah. the J model, you're saying 1973. So that's kind of like old school, like basically just pump rockets out. And of course, yeah. you've got the gun. Yeah. 20 engine, yeah, uh, a 2.7 inch rockets and the same uh, 20 millimeter cannon. It's still on the still on the on, on the Z model. Um, okay. It, it was pretty much a rockets and gun platform. Yeah, and then for the whiskey, I mean, we're still talking early 90s. I'm assuming it was still steam gauge type technology. Yep, steam or, gauge, okay. um, steam gauge. Uh, Rockets and guns, certainly, and then uh, and then tow missiles and Hellfire. Okay, so but it did have an onboard laser. You just didn't have a way to really fight. No, it we, night. we we didn't even have an onboard laser. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. So you're just carting uh, around. So what you're, was the plan for that? Who who would be like just guys on the ground? Guys on the ground, uh, OV tens in the air. Uh, okay. We go up and do some training occasionally with with you guys. We go uh, like places like Fort Drum and, and go go on a missile shoot um, and have you lays for us, buddy lay buddy lays for us as we call it. You know, I'm sure you did yeah. the same. And, uh, and we'd shoot and then facts on the ground. The forward air controllers would have sure some type of laser designator. Um, yeah, it wasn't ideal. Um, and it was not ideal by a long shot. Okay, so you're just carting around other people's bullets. At that point, but yeah. for the toe, you've got what's some, some sort of just optical sight in the in the nose. Absolutely right in the nose. Of the aircraft, uh, so pilot the front seat only uh, would go kind of we call it going heads down inside the, the, the sight, fire the missile standard tow missile at about you know thirty seven fifty meters. I think that's what it still was. Um, yeah, pretty much day only. Um, that site had no nights, so we would do some missions in training only where you would uh, put up uh, illumination flares over the loom mm-hmm. and then attempt to shoot under the loom at targets. Wow. Okay. You, you can imagine how effective that was. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge timing yeah. issue. Uh, um, <laughs> and hoping that the uh, the loom the round doesn't uh, burn through its risers, which I've seen on occasion. I'm sure you have as well. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's a great playing exercise. You know, we, I remember... We did it at the weapon school when I went through our weapon school and it was, it, it's great because it teaches you the plan and all the coordination yeah. required for everybody. And uh, the actual shooting of the missile under loom is probably the least important. Uh, just the lessons learned of planning it, doing it. Yeah. Knowing you're lucky if you did it well, uh, knowing that it's probably not going to go as well as you want. Yeah. Cause it's a huge coordination uh, piece down I mean, almost to the second, because as I recall, an loom rocket burns for about two, two and a half minutes, I want to say. Um, so, yeah, so you're really and in your time and, you know, the time in that you're working the angles and all that stuff. So we, we used to do stuff like that. I really practice it for uh, air assaults in Afghanistan because it was so dark and, right. um, you know, you couldn't do air assaults or anything under a certain illumination condition. So we're like, well, what if we shoot uh the loom rockets up and that'll change the condition. So then it came into this whole, whole game of, okay, you got to shoot the rocket over the LZ, but not directly over the LZ. Cause again, burn through risers land on top of a Blackhawk. 
Yep. And then, uh, but, but time it out in such a way that the Blackhawks land within that two minute window, which, you know, if you've, and I'm sure you have, but you know, if you've done an air assault, you, you can usually time it out to a two minute anyway, you know, that's what you should be able to do, but still it's, it, it sounds easier and it looks easier on paper than when you try to go execute. It. It's a little bit more complicated. But. Oh yeah. I just remember we'd have in our case for training, we'd have one or two shooters hmm. and, uh, you know, you're out there at 3,000 meters, which is, doesn't seem that far, but I forget what it was, probably 15, 16 plus nose up. So yeah, I felt bad for those. They were in a hover, and uh, these are, you know, Anvis 6 old NVGs on low mm-hmm. light, and they're hauling the nose up, almost going backwards, firing these rockets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they and they wanted to shoot them so you, they would kick a little pedal, you know, a little right pedal, so you'd spray them out. You'd, so you'd shoot seven rockets, so you'd kind of yeah. spread them out a little bit. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So, so you can imagine doing it the first time was kind of a shit show. And then <laughs> if you've done it 20, 30 times, which I don't know how many people ever had, um, I'm sure you got much better at it. Um, yeah. And then, it, then it's such a niche, like, you know, thing like, oh, good. I learned how to do this one thing that I'll probably never have to do, but I'm really good at it. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, about that's right. an interesting point, too, because it's such I don't think um, I would say your era and certainly the era that I started in was much more um, accustomed to hovering firing of, of rockets um, and the complexity that comes with that. Because just like you said, having to pitch nose up, you know, on the Apache, I, is the, the, the newer Culver's, do they have articulating pods or are they still fixed? They're fixed pods, but they oh, are, okay. but they shoot the uh, APKWS, the advanced Precision kill weapons, yeah, as we call it. So laser guided 2.75 inch. You almost have a yeah. precision guided ammunition with every rocket. Um, yeah. Otherwise, when we got the night targeting system, um, the software in theory was supposed to understand um, that I would shoot a 2.75 inch rocket. Hmm. So if my front seat would uh, laze the target, auto track the target, uh, the reticle in my HUD in the back seat would automatically adjust to the target. So all I had to do was put the pipper on the target and shoot. Right. And my rockets should be there. But you know anyone who shot unguided rockets, it's yeah. It's uh um yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell people it's shooting bottle rockets out of a PVC pipe. You know, they're they're generally gonna go forward the direction that you you pointed. Um and then every now and then you're pleasantly surprised when it hits dead balls on and five other ones land all around it. But, yeah. uh, but I guess too, what I'm getting at is like, you know, in the modern time guys, guys who graduated flight school, you know, after 2005, 2006, at least in the army, they didn't have to do hovering fire. And even if they did, if they're in the Apache that the, you know, the, the pylons articulate up and down. So you don't have to do these dramatic nose angles, but I remember being a, a new OH 58 guy and flying um, gunnery, shooting gunnery, and we would shoot the old MPSMs. Did you guys ever shoot those, the multi-purpose submunition rockets? No, that, that doesn't ring a okay. bell to me. Okay, warheads, so, yeah. so it was like a you know a, a, a poor man's fast cam you know type thing. It would drop out, uh, I think nine little bomblets that were like shaped charges, and they'd come down on this little like sort of parachute drogue shoot type thing. Um, 
So you would kind of the same concept of shooting the the Illum rockets is you'd have to shoot it over the target area and then it would pop and you know the, these things would fall out. But uh, you know we'd have to practice doing these hovering fire. So yeah, you'd have to yank back you know from a hovering position, yank back 15 degrees or whatever to get the nose up so you could shoot those rockets out. And um, so yeah, I can I can just picture a line of aircraft or a couple of aircraft trying to get ready to shoot this tow and another guy trying to shoot rocket or uh illumination up high enough because because too with illumination you got to get it high enough for it to actually matter i remember us shooting them uh even on the on the on the run in you know it'd have to yank it back like 30 degrees nose high to get them to get them where you really wanted them so yeah yeah that's <laughs> well fortunately we didn't have to take that technology with us um post 9 11 uh because we yeah long upgraded to a, a night targeting system that you know, it, I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, like doing anything at night without that. So just, yeah. When, when did they start getting the night capability roughly? Night targeting system came in circa 1995. I think that's about when we started fielding them. Okay. Um, uh, I think I checked out of my first squadron in 96 and we, we had them, we had them there. I didn't have them on my last deployment there in the nineties, but, uh, dramatic increase in capabilities just yeah the laser gives you all this information just because you now have 10 digit grids you can you can be a much more effective forward air controller uh, makes you better lead makes you better wingman navigation uh, responsibilities you know sitting there with paper maps um, you have a lot better situational awareness And, and never mind the fact that the flare just you know is is unbelievable for targeting both with tow, hellfire and everything we use. So it's. Yeah. I was going to ask you if it was FLIR or, or thermal imaging or how that worked. Did yeah. you guys use it like in the Apache, you know, we used it for air surveillance as well. Like it's, you know, it's tied to your helmet. Did, did that technology exist in the Cobra during that time or was it simply on a screen or, or how did you use it? So kind of imagine a, a five inch screen, six inch screen in the front seat only. Um, mm. And so the pilot in the front seat would have, uh, he'd have the flare in the front seat. The back seat had no repeater. Um, so okay. I didn't, I couldn't see what, what he was looking at. And that was okay. Um, just from, from a crew coordination standpoint, you know, it's usually the young guy in the front seat, but you develop trust and communication really well. Um, yeah. And you're, you're counting on in this case, him to, make the right decisions, right? Hey, that's, that's a BMP, right? That's a T-72. That's not an M1A1, correct? That's not a, all these things that we spend a lifetime as weaponeering folks understanding. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was no way for me really to get his situational awareness in the backseat. Okay. And, and no way, obviously then for the FLIR to assist you in flying. So you were just pure goggles at that point? Pure goggles. Yeah. Okay. Did that ever change with the Cobra? Did they ever integrate no. the FLIR with the helmet? No, there's a, there's a new helmet system they fly now on this, on the Zulu, um, that really helps, um, both air crew, but, uh, as far as, um, you know, similarities to the Apache or the pilots flying with the monocle, it doesn't, doesn't exist in the Cobra. Okay. All right. Interesting. So, uh, the nineties, you made it to your unit just in time to miss Desert Storm. What uh, what happened then? Like what what was what was life like as a new new pilot in a uh, Cobra Squadron? 
life was great. I mean, we it was uh, we had we had we had all whiskeys, uh, which was great. Uh, it's a it's a big squadron. Uh, the Marine Light Attack helicopter squadrons are big. At the time, we were just transitioning from twelve and twelve because you have twelve Cobras and twelve Hueys, and they were November model Hueys, and they were dropping those to eighteen Cobras. Um, and nine Hueys. So that was the size of a unit, 27 helicopters. So it was, it was pretty big. Um, and the idea, particularly on the East Coast, is you would send detachments of four Cobras, two or three Hueys, um, out with every Marine Expeditionary Unit. So that's kind of how the squadron was built in this kind of six and three model, which gave you the 18 and nine. So throughout the 90s, um, I got the squadron immediately deployed. You were there in the back end of the Desert Storm, Persian Gulf, um, and you get on these de- these uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit deployment cycles, um, which was great for me because you're flying and you're flying, but not not great for the family. Um, <laughs> so we're in the Persian Gulf. Uh, we were in Somalia, uh, Somalia in uh, early '93 uh, through the mm-hmm. summer of '93. Um, really interesting experiences there. I think you and I talked about it on the phone a little bit. But- um, yeah, did a little bit of work with the as the 10th Mountain moved in. Um, I came off that deployment, which was uh, again a really good deployment. I went out to the weapons school out in Yuma, Arizona, and then joined immediately joined another uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit with another. So that the heart of the Marine Expeditionary Unit is the in this case was the 46 Squadron, yeah, the mm-hmm. 1246s. In this case, had, they they were augmented by four. 53s, CH-53 Echoes, big, big lift, heavy lift aircraft. The detachment of, of skids, we'll call them, you know, four Cobras, three Hueys. Yeah. And then they'd bring on six Harriers, six AV-8Bs. So when a Mew goes out, it's the aviation combat element, they call it. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty robust. Um, you know, six Harriers, four Cobras, three Hueys, 1246s, four 53s, uh, there's a lot of aviation there, plus all the maintenance, um, and then other air assets, whether it's low altitude air defense or air traffic control folks. So it's mm-hmm. it's pretty well pretty well stocked. So so I went out for another deployment in uh, in '94. Seems like eons ago. Uh, went back to Somalia to try to evacuate the embassy and they canceled that. So you know we nice six month deployment in the med. Came back um, from that deployment. Uh, Scott O'Grady uh, rescue happens. That's the Air Force F-16 pilot uh, who was shot down over Bosnia. Uh, a Marine Expeditionary Unit goes in. You know, uh, all folks I deployed with, all from our same air group. Um, 53s Cobras go rescue Scott O'Grady, and I go back out with another MU, MU unit, and we do another six-month deployment in and around Bosnia. Um, you know, fly missions there for the UN headquarters. Just, as that mission transitioned to, you know, through several multinational, uh, you know, NATO UN mission, uh, as that, that kind of morphed. Yeah. So that, that took me through most of the nineties, uh, in my first tour, which was, uh, was a lot of fun, a lot of flying, but I was gone a lot. Yeah, it's tough. I don't think there's an aviation job that isn't tough on the family, but certainly, uh, going to, uh, going to sea like that all the time. It's gotta be rough. I mean, the 90s were a pretty busy time. I don't think a lot of people think about that or remember that, but there was a lot, there's a lot of little things going on. Um, 
and it sounds like yeah the marines were definitely involved just because just the nature of the beast right being out uh just out there and kind of flexing to wherever things are going on was it was it pretty intense or was it just like a lot of flying that was sort of a little tense um so I look back on it. It's a good, it's a good, it's a lot of flying. That was a little tense. I mean, the planning was, you, know, you do a lot of planning, um, yeah. especially after I'd gone to weapon school, I usually worked in a tactics shop. So we're, we're the squadron commanders, you know, planners for, for all these contingencies. Um, and some were slow baking, like Haiti was always happening. Somalia had multiple units rolling through it post. Mm. I would call everything pre and post, um, Black Hawk Down, really, that's the seminal event, or that's the event that kind of defines Somalia, in my mind, mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and then things that happened in Europe, Bosnia, former Yugoslav Republic, all those actions that we planned for, and little things. And we did the evacuation. I didn't, but um, Marines did in that time the evacuation uh, in Tirana, Albania. Um, where it was a shooting war. I mean, Marines were shooting tow missiles and rockets and guns. It was a, it was a it was a one day shooting war that never got a lot of press <laughs> that I can recall. Um, yeah. So you're right. A lot, a lot of little persistent conflicts that kept us always planning for the next thing. If we weren't doing an exercise, um, you know, there, there'd always be something we would be planning for. Um, What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. So, um, a lot of experience in the nineties of Somalia and, and Bosnia and all these things going on. And then of course, nine 11 happens. What, how, how does that affect your, your career? Where are you at at this time? So nine 11 happens. Um, I just left, I spent a year at the command and staff college up in Quantico. Um, and I was just checking back into my same squatter. Um, and so I did a, I did a penalty tour up at the, the wing headquarters, the two-star headquarters, which is, which is not uncommon. I was a major at the time. Um, and so I, I did a, a year tour up there. Um, and that falls when 9-11 happened. And so it, it really busy for me. So I, I worked in the, the admin, you guys have a G1, we have a G1. So I was yeah. the deputy G1, um, which meant that actual G1 went out and played golf, and I did most of his work for him. Um, <laughs> so, As a good no, deputy no. does, <laughs> the main guy's <laughs> job, yeah. Uh, no, the, our G1 at the time, fantastic guy. He was an EA6B guy, really good guy. Um, so I was fortunate. But from that billet, I learned I learned so much. Because post-9-11, you know, we need guys and gals in every single uh, nearly, you know, the, the demand at CENTCOM, SOCOM, uh, was UCOM was amazing. And every one of those billets needs TSSCIs, right? Top secret clearances. Um, yeah. and strangely enough, most aviators don't have top secret clearances. Um, yeah. um, normally just the, well, 
every EA-6B, the, the electronic attack, and F-18 sure. Deltas generally, those folks had top secret clearances. Um, yeah, I didn't get TS until I got a job that had nothing to do with flying. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> same, exact same thing. I was, uh, when I was in the joint staff, I finally, they hadn't made me do it. Actually, I actually had to do it prior to that. But anyway, the idea is that I, I got this kind of doctorate level under, you know, education in, in manpower. And the, the demands were, they were, because they were standing up all these different cells, planning cells, logistics cells, ops cells, you name them. Um, so we were just shipping people out everywhere. And of course, everyone's hands in the air. Everyone wants to go do something now. Um, yeah, yeah. And at the time, the squadron I was really attached to, they had an attachment that was headed, you know, steaming, steaming right towards Afghanistan. Um, mm. And would be one of the first units in Afghanistan. So, if post 9/11 was, um, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Desert Storm. Everyone just wants to make sure, you know, that that. that that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're in a position to help and respond. Right. And then, so that was a fall of oh, 2001. And by 2002, I'm, I'm back in the squadron. I'm, uh, I'm flying and we all know we're just, we're just preparing. We don't know when it's going to happen. Afghanistan's happening. It's, it's, um, it's bubbling uh, right. from a Marine perspective. Uh, we've had two Mews go in there, one East coast, one West coast. Uh, you know, the task force set up with, uh, at the time, Brigadier General Mattis. Um, so a robust Marine presence. Uh, clearly, the Army's in there doing, you know, God's work. Um, uh, you know, Alan Mack with, you know, Razor 3 and his work and, and those guys. and uh, Some stuff a legend. Uh, but for the rest of the Marine Corps, um, we're, we're planning and we're just waiting. And then... Uh, we're waiting for it to eventually be the, the 20th of March in, in 2003. And, and so that's, that's what we do. We wait, we train. Uh, we got the 29 palms out on the West coast. Um, we do a lot of missile training, a lot of night flying, um, a lot of work to prepare every air crew, every maintainer, um, just for work, you know, for kind of worst case. And then, uh, we, we come back that fall and we finally get, we get the you know, execute orders, and so we, you know, we we pack up everything we have, um, and we hop on amphibious shipping, and we we set sail. From my perspective, you know, I was looking through a kind of looking through a soda straw. Um, we took our all twenty seven aircraft, and hmm. we popped on the USS Saipan, another big amphibious assault ship. Um, also on us with was a 46 squadron, uh, HMM 162, that was commanded by, uh, you know, former flight instructor of mine, uh, someone we deployed with. And, he, and so it was great to, you know, the great thing about the Marine Corps a lot of times in aviation, you know, all these people. And I was an East Coast guy right. my whole time, most of my time. So your friends that were senior captains or baby majors or squadron commanders now, yeah. and you know, pretty much everybody, which is very, very helpful um, when you're trying to get you know, things done. So we, we, we pack up the USS Saipan. Uh, we add a battalion. So what, what happened on the East coast is they formed, uh, the second Marine expeditionary brigade. You know, it's, it's a brigade size. So it's, it's run by a one star. Um, mm -hmm. then you have an, uh, infantry regiment underneath it, a Marine air group, and you have kind of a, a, 
a logistics group, all run by colonels. So it's, it's somewhere stuck in between, you know, the, the MEF, right? The big MEF, the three-star runs it. It's kind of a core. MEF's kind of our core, even though it's, I'd, I'd say it's about the, about the same. So that's what happens on the East Coast. We pack up five, six ships uh, with this Marine Expeditionary Brigade, and we all set sail. Um, we all set sail for, for Iraq. And we leave in we leave in January, just after the first of the year. Um, it's it's a long sail, you know. You don't stop. It's a long sail from uh, North Carolina up into the Mediterranean uh, as you go through and go through the Suez Canal. Uh, and you're all oh, you're, you're you're planning, you're briefing, you're doing a little bit of flying, but you're you're, you're planning. Uh, yeah. And then simultaneously on the West Coast. Uh, the Marine Corps has the first Marine Expeditionary Force led by a three-star uh, Lieutenant General Conway. Um, and he's planning. And the, the MEF is going to run the whole Marine Corps show. Everyone's going to fall under the MEF once we get into Iraq. But he has a division commander named uh, uh, Major General Mattis. You know, and his assistant division commander was uh, a Brigadier General um, Uh, which I just <laughs> his name skips me right now. Uh, anyway, uh, and he had you know, his regimental commanders were you know Colonel Dunford and some other pretty famous guys. Right. Um, so I'm sorry, uh, Brigadier General was John Kelly. My God, how did I forget his name? Um, <laughs> Who had been one of my basic school instructors, you know. So it's great. Um, so so this massive force is formed. I say massive from the Marine Corps perspective. It's probably greater than seventy, maybe closer to eighty thousand Marines, and we, we, we come into the Persian Gulf, and then uh, we plan, and then we plan for probably six weeks, seven weeks plus or minus, and then uh, in my case, uh, I fly ashore with a flight of six Cobras, uh, four or five Frogs, a couple of Hueys, and we get prepared for the opening night. We flew in a couple days prior uh, into a landing zone, just carved out of the desert, um, just south of the Iraqi border. Um, and our plan was for the 46s to insert force reconnaissance units on top of Safwan Hill. Um, Safwan Hill is like the only legitimate piece of terrain in the South, period. Mm. Um, it's also historic because that's where Schwarzkopf signed or accepted the surrender of Saddam Hussein's forces uh, after Desert Storm. Okay. So the idea is we put force reconnaissance Marines there. Uh, they're the eyes and ears of the MEF. Um, we know one of the biggest concerns uh, that came from General Mattis was artillery, right? So artillery, he was very confident, as he should be, that we can handle tanks, we can handle infantry, we can handle fighting vehicles. But going through these breaches... We cannot have artillery shooting at us. And so the plan was to get uh, force reconnaissance units um, on top of Safwan Hill. So that was the opening night, the night of the 20th. Um, so we have, there's a flight of 346s. There's a flight of four Cobras. I'm, uh, I'm the second section lead. A good friend of mine, Brian Kennedy, and my roommate on the boat um, was the overall flight lead for the Cobras. Um hmm. 
So we're sitting there and it's, it's blowing sand. I mean, epic blowing sand. You can't see it. It's daytime. It's a sandstorm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to be a night. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be done at night. This is all low light, right? We pick no moon because that gives us the most advantage. And somewhere prior to sunset, uh, we're told it's, you're told you're, we're going to launch. And we're all looking around at each other saying like now, <laughs> it's like, yeah, like, <laughs> like now, <laughs> like, I'm like, Hey dude, this is like a really bad sandstorm. <laughs> like the sun's setting, you know, double ENT, you know, uh, end of evening nautical twilight where the sun, you know, drops so you can at least use your night vision goggles. Um, and they're like, Hey, you're going to go. So I long brief, uh, my co-pilot, uh, Matt Ziegler, who's superstar and my wingman, um, a guy named John Barranco and his, his co-pilot, the whole flight. And so we, we, we crank up and, uh, one by one, we take off into the sandstorm and uh, we link up and I'm just trying to find dash three. Uh, the 46s are further ahead of us. Um, I'm literally just trying to find dash three. Um, and we're circling these big, lazy loops. And uh, you're, you, you understand this, right? You, you can get so spatially disoriented so quickly. Um, I start, you know, I start saying it one thing and, you know, I find myself in a dive only at 300 feet and, mm. and uh, you, 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 you write yourself and you got a wingman looking after you, but I'm looking after my wingman trying to be a good, trying to be a good stable platform for him. Right. And I'm like, Jan, I can't see anything. And so literally I'm just taking my goggles and flipping them down every few minutes, you know, and they don't, and you're like, I'm sure if this happened to you, you're like, Jesus, when are they going to, you know, something wrong with these goggles. We have Ambus nines <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so finally, the flight leads like, all right, everyone goggle. And uh, you just have all this procedure for goggling. You goggle from front to back and whatever. So right. we just put our goggles on. And I'm like, shit, I can't. See. I mean, it doesn't do anything for us. Yeah. So it just is what it is. And uh, it was supposed to have this little mini shock and awe. We're supposed to have uh, F-18s and Harriers drop uh, drop bombs on top of Safwan Hill. Um mm-hmm before we roll in. Now we have, I have pre-assigned targets. So the idea is if the 46 is generally heading North, they're going to land on an LZ, um, Brian Kennedy section or Howdy section is going to go to kind of go to the left or the West. I'm going to go to the North kind of Northeast. And we're going to do two things. We're going to escort the 46s in case there's more folks there than we thought. And there will also be the close air support once we get comms with the recon unit on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, we're just waiting and uh, it's getting darker and darker and darker, but the visibility is just, it's, it's like, a, it's, it's nothing I'd ever seen. So I, I wasn't really feeling real confident about this. Then eventually we get a TOT and we push and uh, we're pushing in. And then you know, here we hear Hornets checking in on the common and then uh, everything else is canceled. Like no one's coming off the carrier. No one's, you know, carriers aren't coming <laughs> off the amphibs. Like they're not taking off in this. But a, a section of Hornets got off uh, an all-weather squadron. So mm-hmm. um, they came in and and they dropped. And thank God they dropped because they dropped and just these massive explosions. And so you had, you know, we had light for like a split mm-hmm. second. I could see everything. Yeah. You're like, holy shit, you could see everything. Um, then, of course, it went to complete black. Um, and then we 
you know, we, my section just heads, heads right to our pre-assigned targets. And, uh, and so we have uh, almost like a dimpy. We roll in, uh, flip the master arm to arm, and we start putting rockets down at our target. Um, we're shooting flechettes for some reason. You know, we would eventually get out of this. We had, we had these Gucci loadouts. You know, it's, it's a problem to get too many weapons guys together. They all yeah. want, oh, I want this warhead. And that, I was the maintenance <laughs> officer of the unit. Like, dudes, like we're going to take one loadout that we can, that's sustainable, repeatable, all these things. Um, yeah. So we sh- we sh- we put rounds on target and then put some twenty, and then we we set up a holding position kind of the northeast and the other section of Cobras is to the kind of northwest, and uh and the forty sixes are pushing inbound. Um, yeah, long story, we you know vehicles start popping up everywhere, everywhere. Hmm. Um, these little reconnaissance vehicles, uh, and they start running and we can't I tell my front seat, Hey, can you, can you hit him with a toe? And he's like, I can't see shit. Hmm. So, you know, so I start trying to put rockets on them and it's like a clown show. I mean, the rockets are spiraling like, you know, cause I've got, you know, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm, doing the, yeah. I'm doing 60 knots and the balls, you know, half out to the right. You know, it's just right. like, Cause my essay is really low. I'm just trying to fly it. I, you know, never mind fight this machine. Um, yeah. And so my wingman, who's just, Dead. He's, he was on loan from our weapons school. He's just dead calm. And I'm like, hey, you know, his call sign was bus. I'm like, hey, bus, can you get that? He's like, he's like, stand by. And two rockets come out. And he just dings it. I'm like, all right. Uh, oh, I want to like, you prick. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say a word. I was just really happy. I'm like, dude, it's great shooting. So we, we literally set up an orbit, and this happens two or three more times where we're just hmm. hitting vehicle after vehicle after vehicle. I mean, it's not that many, but we, you know, it's probably sure. three vehicles, three, four vehicles. It seems like a lot to us because this is, you know, this is my first time shooting rockets, like real yeah, it's rockets. Day one, yeah. It's yeah. day day one, wave one. Um, yeah. And meanwhile, now the forty sixers are trying to come in and put recon in, and uh, and they can't. And these are these are exceptional crews. These are all weapon school grads. These are the flight lead. Had, you know, the Desert Storm guy. Another, he's a super talented guy. And, uh, and no one wants to fail. I mean, right. and, and uh, thank God, I think it's on his third or fourth pass. He's like, hey, um, I'm waving off. We're, we're, we're RTB. We're going home. And we were all going, fuck, thank God. Let's get out of here. <laughs> because, you know, we're, we're just, we're in this really slow 90 foot, I mean, about 300 foot, 90 knot orbit. Um, and the 46 has turned back towards uh, this LZ, you know, we kind of carved out of the desert where the Marines did. And, uh, my lead's like, Hey, I'm headed, you know, you know, whatever I'm doing, you know, one eight zero. I'm like, dude, just, I'm not going anywhere near you. You just go, I'll catch you. Yeah. I'll catch you on deck. And, and it almost simultaneously, my, my wingman comes, cause I look down and doing like 70 knots. I'm supposed to be doing 130, whatever I'm supposed to be doing. He blows by me. <laughs> I'm just being a bad lead. I'm just, it's just, you know, it's all, it's all very disoriented. Right. Um, and, and one thing I didn't mention was on our last engagement, um, and this put a chill down everyone's spine. Um, we just come off a, a vehicle I, I'd shot with gun and you hear it on guard, on guard. Hey, Marine Cobras, you're, you're engaging friendlies. Oh no. And, uh, yeah, that same probably sick feeling you have in the pit of your stomach right now. I was like, you've got to be shitting me. 
And yeah. and I knew where we were. I knew exactly where we were. There's no friendlies anywhere near all the Marine, you know, tank units and armored units and infantry formations are well behind us waiting to go through these um, checkpoints in the right in the morning. And he, and whoever's on the, on the, on guard gives out a grid, a 10 digit grid. And I'm like, I'm like, Matt, Matt, you got to plop that shit. And he's like, we're clean. It's, you know, then my wingman got beat us to it. He's like, Hey, I think that's eight, eight clicks away, nine clicks away, whatever it is. And I'm like, Holy yeah. shit. So that just, that just timing. oh man, it just, no matter what, just to think that, you know, like anyone's engaged in a friendly vehicle, which did happen. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it was a, it was one of our own squadrons mates who did that. Um, obviously on the knowingly. So we head back, um, yeah, we head back and I'm, I'm the last one to land and it's, it's like a parking lot. Just imagine like a big parking lot in a mall and it, Cobras, Hueys, they're all landed every, there's no flight line. They're just plopped down wherever they could land and slid to a stop. I mean, it was just mm. that, just the way it was. Um, and so, yeah, we get out and, uh, you know, I talked to my, my wingman. I'm like, dude, we, we can't ever do that again. Like we'll never survive that again. There's no way. Um, you know, we go to debrief it and all the, all the bigs are talking about what we're going to do and we're going we're to go back out again, whether we're going to you know, go, go right now, wait a little bit, go in the morning, cancel. And, uh, and you got a lot of planners there. So the, the air group commander, who's a colonel, he's still on board the ship. Um, my squadron commander was there because he, we also sent uh, several sections out to shoot border posts. Uh, all these uh, were like army border posts were so there's no problem getting through these roads, these ingress points for Marine units. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, as we're trying to debrief it, we hear a, a 46 goes down on the Afa Peninsula. Um, hmm. I think it's killed everybody, which was, which was true. It had gone down tragically. Uh, but all of us were saying, you know, that could have been any of us. Clearly could have been any of us. Um, yeah. So cooler heads prevail. They, uh, they said, hey, we're going to cank the mission. Uh, there's a cancel the mission. And, uh, and the next morning, you know, we get up super early and we fly back to the boat. Um, like I shut my, I shut, we shut our section down, but there's basically this crews waiting to hop in our aircraft. And they're, this is, this is the, this is the, you know, the first morning, right? So they're all, they're all going over the, you know, going over the, as all Marine units are pushing through Basra and on their way towards places like Nazaria. They're, uh, mm. They're, they're taking the aircraft. And so, yeah, it was interesting, really interesting first night um, to a first day. And then the wild thing was knowing that I was going to have to do it again the next night and the next yeah. night and the next night. Um, yeah. I'll probably talk about this later, but that was one of the things that always was in the back of my mind was other deployments that would come in the future to Iraq or it doesn't matter where it is. Um, you know, for us as, as Marines, we're going to go there, we'll spend six, seven months there, then we're going to leave. There's a start date and there's pretty much a known end date. Yeah. Um, this one with no end date, um, and things would only get worse. They would only get a lot worse before they got better, uh, just mm. from my perspective. Um, so it was, that was the interesting part of the opening night was just kind of understanding this. There's no end date and we're going to have to do this again, not next week or in, in a month. We can't plan all day. We're going to do it. And, eight, nine hours, we're, we're launching again and we're to fly yeah. for, you know, for whatever it takes. 
That's an interesting um, point that uh, I think gets lost on a lot of us because you're right. It's it's war versus coin deployments where, yeah, you, you go there, like you said, uh, we should be here for 12 months, six months, whatever, whatever the thing is. But but you guys are going there. It's like, well, we don't know. This could take two days, you know, because I'm sure the desert storm mentality was still there. You know, that was such a quick fight you know it's like well yeah. this, this might be over pretty quick or or uh or or not um but yeah you don't know how long it's going to take and you don't know how bad it's going to get so that's that's interesting there's no baseline i guess you could say like it seems like in coin at least in all my deployments there was a sort of baseline of at least you understood roughly what you were getting into uh it, it may fluctuate slightly from that baseline but it was it was pretty standard whereas this you guys are kind of going into the unknown yeah, totally agree Yep, the future deployments, you have a you have a rip with the unit coming out. For us, a little left seat, right seat, everyone gets their situational awareness built up and yeah. And you go do ops and then you know, you know another unit's gonna come in with their advanced party, you do left seat, right seat, then you're gonna go away. Um, yeah, and the and the differences between those deployments, it, it almost seems like it it's you cause them because um you know, if you rip out with a unit that was uh, ahead of you, um, they may have done things more aggressively or they may have been you know more conservative and so now you do things differently and of course the enemy gets a vote so now they're going to change things based on that so you you sort of change that baseline but um yeah that's interesting i never really thought of it in those terms um so for the for the invasion i mean did you guys operate off the boat the entire time or did you eventually get land-based or so we would operate off the boat for probably four or five days. Um, first, you know, first day was a 20, we went back out and flew the next couple nights. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's a, a big fight in Nazaria, right? That's really a really important date for our squadron, really important date for, that was an East coast uh, battalion. First battalion, second Marines was in there. Second battalion, eighth Marines was in there. All of task force, what, what became task force Tara was in there. So we, we had an attachment to those to those guys in those units. That was you know, the five hundred seventh and Jessica Lynch and that whole that whole piece. Mm. So we spend several days in there. Um, really, for for our guy, very very intense for our guys. Like you know, a lot of shooting. I mean, just repeated. I mean, just some amazing flying by a lot of great people. Um, a lot of aircraft getting shot up pretty good that we're able to fix. Um, it, and the intent was we were going to slowly push all of our maintenance and the entire air group into Iraq, um, which we did. So the sand, there was a big stand, sandstorm that hit, uh, you know, 25th, 26th, something like that of, of March. But after that, um, we flowed nearly everything off the ship. Um, and Marine Aircraft Group 29, which I was a member of, our squadron was, was, was headquartered in uh, Jaliba. Uh, which is older, Jaliba, Jaliba, I forgot they pronounce it exactly, was a, a former Iraqi MiG base just south of Nazaria and south of Talil, the big, another big Iraqi MiG base. Yeah, um, yeah. And we set up headquarters there. That was the MAG-29 headquarters, Marine Aircraft Group 29 headquarters. And we would fly out of there, um, not for the entire portion of OF-1, because we, we had a real KG group commander. <laughs> and we were the only air group in Iraq period. I mean, for the entire duration, no one else was there. It's only our air group. All the other air groups had bed down in uh, Ali al-Salim and other places in Kuwait. 
um, it would have to fly that much further to the fight. It didn't matter if, if you're flying, you know, F-18s, it's not a big deal. You're flying Cobras, right. Hueys, you know, you, yeah, it's a journey. It's a trip. It's a whole thing. So, yeah. So eventually all of, uh, the air group would be uh, flying out of Jaliba. We renamed them Riverfront. We we named all of the Marine FARPs and FOBs uh, after baseball teams or, or baseball parks. So you had Riverfront, Fenway, you know, th- you know, Three Rivers, Coors, you name it. That's how we we marked all of our FOBs and our, our forward air, forward army and refueling points out there. So that. That's where we flew. That's where we flew it for the majority of OIF, um, as the fight and as you know, General Mattis was. And those guys were going. I mean, they were going just like Third ID was cutting across the desert. Um, yeah. The one MEF was blowing up Highway Six, um, headed to Baghdad. And so our group commander said, "Hey, we we need to jump. We need to jump north." Um, and so you can imagine it's a massive logistics footprint in in what we called the Riverfront. And one thing our ship did, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but I think it's really important. Saipan, USS Saipan was the only ship that never went off station. Uh, the CEO of the ship was unbelievable. Um, Captain Hackney, she was awesome. We called her mom, actually. And, uh, and it was pretty cool. I mean, she's like, she called them her Marines, which is pretty, pretty endearing. Um, but she was a person of her word and... I was a maintenance officer, so we, we had to get. I worked closely with the logistics officer, who was one of my was one of my roommates. We had to get everything off the ship. But we also wanted to leave. I wanted to leave a couple of Cobras and a Huey on the ship, healthy. Um. um and I we and we we briefed that, and our skipper, who's a smart guy, agreed. Um, small point, but it it drove our readiness skyward. Um. Because even after the first day, we, we, we flew back a couple damage. You know, we had a TSU shot out and some other stuff shot out in the first day. Um, pilot flies it back to the ship, drops it off, picks up a, a, a fresh Cobra, uh, and they mm. fly it ashore. Um, same thing with Huey. So we, we it really helped our readiness. Um, and it, it kept a, a supply line between the ship. So it wasn't really that big a deal coordinating and get, getting the stuff off the ship because we had that right. a, a, a supply line there, which was very helpful. Um, the downside is we had to take rotations of our maintenance pilots. So our maintenance pilots are regular flight leads and, you know, aircraft yeah. commanders. So yeah. telling a young captain, he has to sit on a ship for three days to do maintenance flights. Um, <laughs> I may have gotten MF'd a few times, but that's just the way it is. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was important. I thought the, the Saipan was a really great asset for us. And then, um, we get out of Nazaria, finally get out of Nazaria by the end of March. You know, I say the end of March, it's only you know, a couple weeks later. Um, and we began pushing north through towns like Al Hay and all the way up north into Baghdad. And then um, we take the air group, uh, just a portion of it, portion of our squadron, portion of some other squadrons, and we jump up into Salmon Pack, which is a small air base, very small, just to the south end of the east of Baghdad and we set up we set up shop there and that was where we did all our work we went into Baghdad through Baghdad then up into Tikrit um, where we would do one more jump over into Al-Qut uh, but by then 
by mid-April, um, things had pretty much calmed down. So okay. yeah, that was exciting. Yeah, that's an emotional event, uh, jumping an aviation unit. That's just a lot of, a lot of stuff. You're absolutely right. And, uh, and everybody wants to go. Um, yeah. And you have pilots looking at you like, you know, why am I being left back here? Right. Like, at, I mean, at the, at the air base in Southern Iraq, we're going to fly every single day. <laughs> like you're not getting left. There's no, right. it's just, um, you know, group commander says we're moving, we're going to move. Um, and he and the skipper say, well, how many airplanes are going to take? We just map pilots to, to cockpits and, and we map maintainers and, 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 uh, and supply. It's another, another piece that helps us is this kind of, this sock mentality. Remember from, I talked about like Somalia, we had debts of like four Cobras and three Hueys. Um, uh, th- those things. So then it would be in theory, they wanted six and three, but we never got that big normally, but it, it, it allowed our maintenance department and, our, and logistics folks to feel very comfortable. Hey, I need to pack up for eight, you know, eight, eight or nine helicopters. They didn't, right. they didn't have to reinvent the wheel. They were really agile and they could do that, yeah. which was, you know, which was great for generating stories. Um, well, too, uh, it, it comes down to personalities, too, when you've got to break all that stuff down. It's kind of like what we talked about with uh, managing talent coming out of flight school. You can't send all your, your heavy hitters to one spot. Those those uh, personalities come into play, too, when you've got to start splitting the unit up and leaving people behind and stuff. But it is always emotional. Like, oh, I want to go with the where the action's at. You know, It's like, well, there's action here, too. Yeah. No, yeah. You're absolutely right. And uh you know, personalities play such a, and I, I talk about it a lot when I, when I, when I do some writing. Um, personalities are so, I mean, they're, they can be so dominant in a unit and, uh, yeah. and they're, and they can be such a, a blessing. And obviously they can be, you know, a curse if, if people aren't managed. Um, yeah. And this certainly goes with senior staff NCOs, senior NCOs for us and, and, and officers. And uh, you just, and also we saw that, you know, some people who were, uh, you know, we had people who didn't really want to fly either, right? You know, there's yeah. no names here. Like I said, I, I've got no access to, you know, to, to grind, no no crosses to bear here at all. But there's there's just some people that you want to, you know, I, I, you know, it's just my personality. You know, I'd fight you to get in the cockpit if I had to, right? I'm gonna, mm-hmm. I'm going to fly. Like you can get in dash two, right? But you're not getting in my seat. That's my right. seat. And, uh you know, that was kind of bred into me as a, as a lieutenant in the squadron um, and one of our weapons school instructors, you know, he just kind of set me down. He said, Eric, you're either going to be, you're going to be shit hot or you're going to be a shit bird. That's, 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 <laughs> like, this is like, wow, okay. is that, that you have to figure it out. And he said to me, you know, it, it's a big squadron. And if, uh, yeah. at the time he said, if the CO, if CO gets a mission and he's got to send two Cobras with his best crews, if you're not in one of those seats, you got to ask yourself why you're not in one of those seats. Hmm. I was like, okay, it's pretty dog eat dog. Um, it, which doesn't necessarily jive all the time in, in, in our community, but, uh, it was just something that it just stuck with me in the back of my head. And, uh, I, I, I just, I love flying. I always wanted to be, I just always want to be doing, it. I always want to be there. Um, yeah. Um, interesting. Well, well, that's one of the challenges that, um, I saw, you know, because the Army construct is, you know, alien and different from everyone else where we've got warrant officers and then commissioned officers. But uh, that that desire 
to get into the cockpit. It, it's not just a right, it's a privilege type thing. Like I, I saw so many when I became a field grade, you know, I, I was constantly trying to get on the flight schedule. You know, I, I was in a support battalion. We didn't even have aircraft and I was on another, you know, squadron's uh, training plan. And so it was completely up to them to fly me. But I made myself available. I made sure that I was early. You know, every time there was a flight, I made sure that I communicated and they, and, and then they benefited from that, right? They actually enjoyed flying me and made me a pilot in command again and all this stuff. And so I got to fly all the time, but I looked across the, 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 the brigade at, at some of my fellow majors and they just never flew. And they, because they didn't make the time, right? They didn't make it a priority. And I always looked at it as like, I'm, I'm an aviator. Like, you know, yeah, I got to do all this other bullshit that I don't really want to do, but, um, but by God, I'm going to fly. And I flew my ass off as a major and, and, um, I don't know. I just don't see that happen a lot. And I think that the the lesson there is you gotta, you gotta want it and you gotta make it happen. Um, but it sounds like even in your guys' cases where, yeah, everyone's commissioned, but you, you still got all these other jobs to do. You, you still have to make it a priority. You have to make it something that you want to do. Yeah, t- totally agree. And, and by the time you're, you know, feel great. So, you know, you know, there's the guys that want to fly and there's the guys yeah. that are, that'll, that will fly. Um, that's right. Um, they're getting paid either way. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, but yeah. yes. Well, uh, you mentioned writing. You've, you've, you've written a book. It's coming out uh, what, later this month. It's March 1st right now. Yeah, it is March 1st. Um, so okay. it's coming out later this month. Tell us about the book. So the book is, uh, the book is Ghosts of Baghdad. And it really chronicles you know, a bunch of what we talked about just now is um, it talks, it's just my perspective. Like I said, there's no access to grind here, no rights to wrong. It's just, um, it's just my perspective. And it's probably 90% of my perspective in the cockpit. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it covers these 25, 20, some, some odd days from the, from the first, uh, from the first night on the 20th of March until mid April up into crit. And the intent is just to is to have you come for a ride along with me. Just, just it's a story that I, I knew I had to tell. Um, it's it's not about me. It's kind of through my lens. Um, there's a lot, there's a bunch of heroes in this book, and they're they sure shit aren't me. Um, <laughs> they're just people I I knew well and who I flew with or folks that work for me uh, that just did amazing things uh, that. The vast majority of them aren't really recognized either, which any person who's flown in combat or served in combat in any capacity would tell you. You know, it's just it's just it's just the way it is. There's these sometimes just amazing and brilliant things that people do that they shrug it off, they don't care, and they're gonna go back yeah, and refuel. It's Tuesday. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's Tuesday. Yeah, I just yeah, I just put eight hellfire in the air and I just did the, yeah, it's okay. It's it's yeah, right. It's what it's I'm supposed t- to do. It's a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> So that was, uh, that's the intent of, of the book is just let people, whether they're, they're aviation enthusiasts or they're, they're in the military, not in the military, or they understand the cities and places, um, or they don't, it's just an invitation, um, just to just step in the cockpit and shut the canopy and, and you're, you're flying with me and my co-pilot and my wingman and his co-pilot and, you know, it, it takes us through the opening night. It takes us into Nazaria, to some pretty hairy stuff in my mind. Um, it takes us back to Basra, where we're Brits. 
you know, brings you up into Baghdad and takes you up into Crip. Um, and, and, you know, the idea is, you know, the title is, you know, we all, especially in aviation, and we face a lot of ghosts out there. I mean, you know, it's, it's whether you're a kid, you know, looking at your bedroom window, you know, challenging a ghost to appear, <laughs> or <laughs> you feel like someone's chasing you in the night. Um, we all got our ghosts, whatever they are. Um, and man, we had, you know, we had ghosts. That's just the way it is. Um, and they chase us every day, every night. And they chased me when I was in Somalia. I mean, there was times, I mean, you just, that, that's the kind of way I look at it. And, it. and you can never really get past it. I don't know, in my mind, right. You're always, it's what keeps you, it's what keeps you good at your job. Um, it's what keeps you, you know, keeps you focused, keeps your team focused. And, and so the idea is there's nine or 10 of us that, that fly the first night. Uh, there's a command and control Huey flying. There's, there's eight pilots in our four Cobras and uh, they got, you know, there are two pilots up there flying and their crew chiefs. And, and we all kind of go our separate ways for these in the second night. I think I flew 13 and a half hours, you know, at the time it was epic. You, you, right. you look at me and you tell me, yeah, that was Thursday. You're right. <laughs> I would yeah. say it was Thursday. <laughs> Just really tired. That's why we, you know, um, and then you go out and you do it again Friday. But it, it was this group of people, this in particular, the subset of people that, you know, that did the opening night. We all flew the opening night together. We all saw the same things that we never really talked about. We just said, you know, we're going to have to be better. Um, we're just going to have to do better every day. And, and we did. Um, it never felt like it. Um, but by the time we got to Decrit, um, there's the last night of real shooting, uh, probably the 15, somewhere in the middle of April. And, uh, you know, we land back at this little fob at, at Salmon Pack. And we're just sitting, you know, you're sitting on the MRE boxes. Those are your stools. Those are your briefing stools. And you got a GP tent room. And, uh, and we wait for the last flight to come back. And it's a good friend of mine. He's my roommate, too. And he just starts talking about the flight. And, and to he's just talking like it's no big deal. And I'm just listening mm. and I'm just, I'm just, I'm listening. And if I shut my eyes, I, I'm almost back with him flying again. Like, cause we've all done these things. Mm. And I just, and I listen to him and he stops and it's probably two o'clock in the morning, something like that. And I just look around the room and it's the same, it's the same 10 of us from the first night, just by pure mm. luck. And, yeah. uh, and so, you know, that's where I, in my mind, uh, you know, we flipped a script, um, you know, in, in my mind, we're, we're the ghosts of Baghdad now. There's no more ghosts. Um, yeah. We can fly with impunity. We can attack with impunity. The moon's up, which is great. Um, we've learned so many <laughs> lessons. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Whoever thought no moon work was a good idea. Like, guys, yeah. you couldn't see a segue. <laughs> yeah, a sandstorm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Let's give us a moon. Um, so so that's, the, that's the story I tell. And it really ends. Um, it ends at Decrit, um, which is... Uh, you know, the first corner of the Sunni Triangle from Tikrit, as you know, down to Baghdad, out to Ramadi. Um, and it it ends kind of the same way it started. Um, but in between is, uh, it's just, you know, you, you get to ride along with me, you know, whether you whether you like me or not, we're, we're stuck in the <laughs> cockpit together and we all learn to work together. <laughs> so, yeah, um, well, that's some, sometimes that's the reality of the cockpit. You don't necessarily <laughs> like the other guy, but there you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I sit here about cockpit stuff in a Cobra, you know, 
everything's, which makes you generally a smart aleck, is uh, everything's inflection, right? I can't, if you and I are flying an OH-58, yeah. you can look at me and you can give me like an eye roll. And I'd be like, yeah, sorry, yeah. dude, I won't, I won't do that again. Right. <laughs> or, yeah. or what the hell is that? <laughs> and all we can be is sarcastic, you know? It's like, you know, my front seer saying, oh, that was a, that was a really nice shot. <laughs> it's like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Maybe in serious? <laughs> Did you guys have a little mirror? Did you guys have a little mirror you could see each other? So he, the front seat has a mirror that can look okay. in the back. I don't know yeah, what we were using. Yeah. I just looked at his camouflaged head. Um, You're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so. Yeah, because we had that in the Apache E2, you know, and you just kind of yeah. glare at the guy in the back seat. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, most, like, like for us, we, we were primarily um, night guys. So we were night guys, and that's what we wanted mm-hmm. to be. Um, so yeah, you can't uh, use the mirror it's too dark. Yeah, we do some, you know, but it was uh, just kind of that inflection. But yeah, um, but yeah, but back on the book, that's that's the journey it takes. That's uh, um, completely my perspective. Um, and uh, again, it's you know that a story I needed a story I needed to tell. And I've you know I've I've talked to so many people and I interviewed um, I've interviewed my squadron commander and my executive officer at the time. Um, both went on to you know, very successful careers, retired as colonels and commanded. My air group commander um, was my wing commander in Iraq on my third tour. He retired as a three-star. Um, promotion, all that stuff doesn't really matter. Um, what really mattered was I had a chance to talk to them. So I probably had three, 400 hours interviews um, with every flight lead within reason that I dealt with from the opening night um, to some ground commanders. And so I, got their perspective. I didn't necessarily give their perspective, um, but I had their perspective in the back of my mind when I, you know, when I I continuously put kind of pen to paper Um, and and I was sensitive to it, right there. I was sensitive to it because it's, um, it it was very interesting talking to some, you know, one, one pilot in particular who did something um, absolutely amazing. And it was just, it just flew under the radar. Um, this, this guy came out, flew 200 miles unescorted. Um, I, I'd landed south of, uh, I had lost terror authority and tried to kill myself and my co-pilot, separate story. Um, browning out, taking off of this FARP. Uh, my wingman had broke down. I closed the FARP. I probably did six 360s. Um, it was insane. Then um, we literally land. We get mortared. Uh, one of the, Marines gets wounded, you know, it's one of these, it's one of these crazy nights, uh, yeah. but it's okay. It was, you know, like you said, it was a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> and, but this Marines wounded and we have all the way back in, uh, at riverfront at Chaliba, you know, the call comes in at whatever time it was in the middle of the night. And, uh, there's just the 46 squadrons are there and they're all, they're shot. They've been flying all day. And, uh, you know, it just comes down to, um, a pilot, and it was the squadron commander, guy Bob Headland, Fuzzy, uh, was a flight instructor of mine. We deployed together. Tremendous guy, great leader. Um, and he goes to the group commander because, hey, boss, like, I, I'm the last crew. I've I flown 15 hours today. I'm not, I'm, I'm shot. Yeah. And uh, our group commander says, hey, Bob, I'll, I'll see you when you get back. <laughs> <laughs> cool story, bro. Get out there. <laughs> I love it. Uh, good hustle. See in the locker when you get back. So, yeah. uh, and pretty much only our group commander could have gotten with that. Um, it was just you know, fantastic. So he takes off. It's just him. 
um, just him and his crew, and they fly just. It's just you, you and I remember point, you know, point of injury Kazavaks. They become a yeah. big deal in the future. Um, he takes off, flies. We talk, we get him in the zone, loads up the Marine, flies back, Marine survives, and some shrapnel on his shoulder, I think, in his leg. And that was it. Nothing. It was Tuesday, right? It was Tuesday. But yeah. talking talking to him years later, he was like, Yeah, that was a that was now that I think about it, it's a pretty wild event. I said, Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Um, but uh, so I, I, I try to um, I try to make sure I, I'm inclusive um, within reason um, when I tell the story because it includes clearly so many more important people than I am, number one. Um, and anything in aviation is done, um, it's a team sport. I mean, uh, particularly in tech aviation. I mean, every avionics man, every ordnance man, uh, every single person, you know, pulling a wrench, pulling pins, loading ordnance, nothing happens unless you know, they know you, you give a shit and that what you're doing is important. And yeah, I think they figured out pretty quick how important it was when they come back and there'd be airplanes that are like, Oh, there's a lot of holes we got to patch in there and your, your hydraulic shot out <laughs> or whatever it's going to be. So, um, no, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what the book, I hope it effectively tells that story. Um, and you know, put some, put some recognition where it belongs. Yeah. Um, where can people find it? Is it going to be on Amazon? Do you have a website? How's that work? Yeah. So, um, I think the plan is on the, on the by 20 March, uh, pre-orders will be available, uh, on Amazon. Uh, also through my publisher ballast books. Um, so ballast books will have it out there uh, for them. And then, um, Barnes and Noble, your standard places where you can uh, order books. Um, so the pre-orders will come out and then, um, it'll go into full, uh, into full, uh, product, you know, full production, whatever we call that, whatever that looks like. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I will definitely, uh, share all those links, um, with the show and, uh, and once it gets published, we'll, we'll hit it again. Are you going to, are you going to do an audible uh, audio book? You're going to do it yourself. So <laughs> now I, I need someone with a silky smooth, like South Texas voice to do that, you know, yeah. uh, unless I could get like Morgan Freeman uh, to do it for me. <laughs> okay. Morgan so, Freeman. I'll talk yeah, he's on my, he's on my list. He has someone who has a voice that's, uh, you know, yeah, that's, that, that can really, but no, we'll have a, we'll have an audio book um, for sure. It'll, it'll, when it, it'll be uh, when it, when it goes to publishing, when it's finally out of editing, which is, now basically, uh, we'll have uh, ebooks as well. So initially, it'd be ebooks and hardcover. Um, okay. And then uh, we'll get it. We'll get an audio book built. Well, if I write a book, I want to have Matthew McConaughey read it. <laughs> but, uh, Morgan Freeman's also a good good choice. So I appreciate. Yeah, that. he's in there. Um, yep. Gotta very have a short cool. List. Well, thanks uh, for doing that. I know we could probably go for hours talking about uh, Iraq and, and just deployments after that, but we don't want to we don't want to spoil the book. And then, uh, of course, like you and I talked on the phone, you know, maybe maybe you write another one about further adventures. And um, absolutely, yeah. And this, of course, always just opens us to come back and talk about other stuff in the future. So, uh, thanks for uh, taking the time here on a on a morning. And uh, yeah, it was, it was good talking with you. Absolutely fantastic. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks. I appreciate the support too. This is a, uh, this has been great.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.